What's happening in the world right now, coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Three FBI whistleblowers are testifying publicly before Congress. They're exposing alleged abuses and retaliation by the agency. New testimony on classified documents. National Archives officials say classified materials have been mishandled by every administration since President Ronald Reagan. The USPS Postmaster General praising the Postal Service's recent financial improvements. However, lawmakers point out a spike in attacks on mail carriers. The latest county in Oregon votes to break off and join Idaho. That makes 12 counties so far. The county's residents feel their values align more with their neighbor. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is on President Biden, who has arrived in Japan for this year's Group of Seven meeting. Biden told his Japanese counterpart that the U.S. and Japan will hold Russia accountable for its invasion of Ukraine. And I'm proud that the United States and Japan are facing it together. And, uh, you know, we stand up for the shared values, including supporting great people in Ukraine as they defend their sovereign territory and holding Russia accountable for its new aggression. The G7 summit runs from Friday through Sunday. The leaders plan to discuss possibly tightening sanctions against Russia, as well as security concerns about China, among other issues. And more from the Indo-Pacific, the Quad Summit between the U.S., Australia, India, and Japan has reportedly been canceled. This after President Biden canceled his attendance to hold talks to avoid a default on the nation's debt. However, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said the summit could go on as planned without Biden there. To learn more, we're joined live by retired U.S. Army Colonel and former Director of Cybersecurity Policy at the Department of Defense, John Mills. John, it's great to have you with us. Kevin, thank you. Always an honor to be on your show. Analysts say a canceled Quad Summit is a win for Beijing and a blow to U.S. Indo-Pacific standing. What's your reaction to this? Well, first and foremost, presidential movements and participation in meetings are a very complex event. But canceling something of this magnitude sends a very wrong and bad signal to everyone, to our other quad partners of uh, Japan, Australia, and India, also to China. And and the, the excuse that uh, the president has to stay home and take care of uh, a budget default falls flat and and just does not come across well. I think it's a very bad decision. Jake Sullivan, it's just, what is he thinking? Kurt Campbell, what are they thinking? Uh, Tony Blinken, what are they thinking? Very bad. It looks like Biden is staying home to do a spreadsheet. I'm not trying to be funny. It's just, I, I've done so many international uh, events like this. It, this is really the wrong message. John, speaking of China, it's very likely that Chinese state-run media will paint America as internally divided and saying that it's not a reliable partner. Is this a big concern? Uh, yeah, I, I really don't. <laughs> Honestly, I don't sign a whole lot to China television and, and the state media. Of course, they're going to play this game uh, and they just ignore it. But it is a bad move by, uh, and again, I really, who's the, who are the ones who really are at fault on this? you got to sign responsibility. Jake Sullivan, Blinken. Kurt Campbell, bad decision, bad decision. And, you know, oh, we're going to have the G7, but we can't do the quad and we can't travel Australia and Papua New Guinea. Those wonderful Southwest Island republics need us so badly. And a simple visit from uh, Biden would would mean so much and have such an impact. And yet he was too busy. 
Diplomacy is very important in that region. The U.S. State Department has said the Chinese regime poses a threat to global peace and security. And at the same time, according to Money.com, if there was a default, the credit rating, the, GOP, the GDP, the stock prices would all fall, unemployment would go up, payments from government programs wouldn't get out. Is the president's priorities right here? Well, I mean, we were, I think we're all old enough. This, this debate goes back years, but the size of the federal budget, the size of the annual debt, the size of the accumulated debt, uh, the poor numbers, because we don't even know what these numbers are anymore. We used to know these numbers, but, you know, we got a roughly, you know, $20 trillion GDP, we think, $25 trillion accumulated debt, unclear, probably two to three times that, what, what, depending on how you're measuring this. Uh, uh, you know, people are, are fretting about a default. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to get our budget under control. So, John, you can't be in two places at once. And, of course, in-person meetings are very important. We are in the era of phones. Is it possible to do both? Well, you know, uh, the Biden team has tried the, several Zoom conferences. They went over very badly uh, when she was having face-to-face international meetings. Um, the Biden team was doing Zoom sessions, which really sent such a bad message. And these are important. Biden's priority, he should have been at the G7. He should have been, uh, because he's not personally negotiating these debt, uh, the whole debt situation. That is not him. He has a chief of staff. He has other significant people who can do the sausage making. Uh, his priority, he should have been at the G, he's at the G7, but he should have, should have done the quad visited Australia, visited Papua New Guinea, that is a far more effective use of the senior executive's time. The president does have a responsibility to represent the nation to other nations abroad. Retired U.S. Army Colonel John Mills, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Kevin. Three FBI whistleblowers testified today before the select weaponization of the federal government subcommittee. They exposed details on alleged abuses of power by FBI leadership and how the Bureau allegedly retaliated against whistleblowers. In August 2022, I made protected whistleblower disclosures to my immediate supervisor, assistant special agents in charge, and special agent in charge about my concerns regarding January 6 investigations assigned to my office. I believed our departures from case management rules established in the FBI's domestic investigations and operations guide could have undermined potentially righteous prosecutions and may have been part of an effort to inflate the FBI's statistics on domestic extremism. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan accused the FBI and the DOJ of getting politicized in recent years. Steve Friend, a former FBI special agent, he said his security clearance was suspended in September 2022. He says that was after he objected to the use of a SWAT team in arresting a subject who the FBI said illegally entered the Capitol on January 6th. Waller whistleblowers, yes or no, do you believe that the retaliation pattern has a cooling effect on other agents from coming forward or speaking up? Yes or no, Mr. O'Boyle? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Do you believe that the FBI is purposefully hostile to you for that reason to keep agents from speaking up? Yes. Yes, without question. Yes. So I think it's clear we have a pattern here. If you speak up about the abuses you are seeing as an agent, or are sharing information that may not fall in line with the FBI's political narrative, you will be suspended without pay, have your security clearance revoked, and your life will be turned upside down. It's pretty clear that the MO is if you don't comply, they will retaliate. If you don't agree with the political agenda, you get suspended. And they do it in such a way to deter others from speaking up and speaking out. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the weaponization of government. 
Democrats have been questioning the credibility of the three men's testimony, yet Congresswoman Kat Comics said the FBI retaliation was real and that the three were clearly whistleblowers who were wrongly target treated. Every administration since President Ronald Reagan has mishandled classified materials, including mixing classified and unclassified documents. That's what National Archives officials told the House Intelligence Committee during a closed-door interview in March. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on their testimony. The latest revelations come after the committee voted to release an unclassified transcript of the testimony. Director Mark A. Bradley, who heads the Archives Information Security Oversight Office, said, Since about 2010, we have gotten over 80 calls from different libraries where mostly members of Congress have taken papers and deposited them in libraries for collections, their own papers. Bradley later clarified that all the calls concerned the discovery of classified information by the librarians receiving those materials. Former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, and President Biden have all come under the microscope. This due to either alleged or confirmed mishandling of classified documents from their time in the White House. The recent increased interest in classified documents began with a conflict between the archives and Trump over classified documents from his time in office. The agency ultimately referred the case to the Department of Justice, which executed a high-profile search warrant on Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in August 2022. Trump's legal team wrote a letter to the House Intelligence Committee in April this year to explain how classified documents ended up mixed in with unclassified materials. The letter said, White House institutional practices for the handling of classified materials, including declassification procedures, are inconsistent with how the intelligence community and military handles classified materials. This is indicative of the staff's packing processes and not any criminal intent by President Trump. The archive's chief operating officer, William Basanco, told Congressman French Hill that in the 80 cases since 2010 and the three we are dealing with now, it appears that classified were inadvertently, presumably inadvertently, commingled with unclassified documents prior to packing. The Senate confirmed the archive's newest director, Colleen Shogun, on May 10th. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Prosecutors say the Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified documents on social media was warned multiple times over mishandling classified information. They told a judge 21-year-old Jack Teixeira had been warned on at least two occasions. One was in September when he was told to stop taking notes on classified intelligence. Then in October, officials told him to stop asking specific questions about information he was provided. A third incident report says a superior observed him looking at intelligence not related to his primary duty, but he was not reprimanded that time. A Massachusetts magistrate judge is slated to soon decide if Teixeira will stay in jail while he awaits trial. The Postmaster General says the U.S. Post Office has made great progress in its Delivering for America 10-year plan. However, House representatives are making it clear they want to see even more improvement, especially regarding crime. Here's the story. We have improved our service, stabilized our workforce, expanded our capacity, started to modernize our nationwide network, and just two years into a 10-year plan, we have cut in half our projected financial losses. Postmaster Louis DeJoy on Wednesday told a House Oversight Subcommittee that before implementing the Delivering for America plan, the Postal Service's projected 10-year deficit was $160 billion. The plan has reduced that number to $70 billion. 
Republican Chairman Pete Sessions acknowledged the postmaster's efforts, saying that the Postal Service is subject to economic forces just like other businesses. Fuel prices, labor issues, the things that growth and the changes in the marketplace are all part of what this Postmaster General has to work with while maintaining the delivery of mail, which is the mission of the post office. However, the Democratic ranking member pointed out more than 2,000 postal carriers have been assaulted or robbed since 2020. He went on to indicate that he doesn't agree with the proposed solutions to the problem. The Postal Service's announced actions last week to address postal crime seem to me to be very light on proactive protection for letter carriers. The uh, Postal Service's proposal focuses on hardening physical infrastructure which is, of course, helpful in terms of preventing mail theft, but it really doesn't do anything to help keep the postal workers safer. Other lawmakers throughout the hearing voiced similar concerns regarding crimes toward mail carriers. Most of us grew up in an America where postal carriers were not being robbed. DeJoy said USPS staff are studying multi-factor verification technology, time locks, and hardening clustered mailboxes to prevent unauthorized access. Senator John Kennedy at it again. He tripped up a judicial nominee of President Biden's during her confirmation hearing yesterday. Here's Kennedy quizzing the judge. Uh, tell me about the dormant commerce clause. Senator, in my, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the commerce clause, which is found in Article One of the Constitution. Well, it was a big Supreme Court case. It just came out of your state. Um, and I apologize, Senator. Uh, you know, I've. In my 11 years of practice and my five years on the bench, I have not dealt with the dormant commerce clause. Um, but if I am so fortunate enough to be confirmed and have to uh, deal with it in the future, I would certainly You'll look research it, it and yeah, be prepared. Okay. All right, then just tell me about the- The big case Kennedy referred to centered around a California law about pork products. The Justice Department argued against the state, saying it violated the Dormant Commerce Clause. The clause prohibits one state from discriminating against another state's commerce. But the Supreme Court last week ruled in favor of California, allowing it to continue certain welfare standards on pork imports from other states. The House of Representatives passes two bills in observance of National Police Week. Both are aimed at supporting police. Most Democrats oppose the bills. One bill makes illegal immigrants who assault police automatically deportable, and another allows retired federal law enforcement officers to purchase surplus federal weapons. Democrats oppose the first bill, saying it would unfairly target those with valid asylum claims, and the second over Republican refusals to require background checks. Democrat Jerry Nadler said he supported the previous version of the bill that called for background checks and would have used proceeds to finance gun violation prevention programs. GOP Congressman Russell Fry said officers already went through checks to be trusted with weapons in their work and that the plan would help the government recoup part of its investment. He said currently they spend millions to destroy the unpurchased guns. Next, some updates on the border. We examine the Biden administration's parole with conditions policy that would have replaced the public health order Title 42 and look at how current border policy is affecting states far from the border.
Joining me now is Rodney Scott, retired chief of U.S. Border Patrol and senior fellow of border security at Texas Public Policy Foundation. Thank you so much for your time today, Rodney. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. 6,400 illegal immigrants were released into the United States. There are no registration number, no court date, and that's under President Biden's new parole policy. That was right before a federal judge's block on the policy took effect. Does Biden's parole program benefit the public? Absolutely not. It's just a streamlined way of releasing people in the United States. The, the, by the way, people are still being released today, but they're being released with a notice to appear. Really, either process allows people to roam freely about the United States when we know very little about them. The NTA, they actually have a court date several years down the road. Uh, the parole is a short term, really, there, there's no court date. But either, pros, either project or either program is a better way to say it has the same end state. It's called catch and release. And as long as catch and release is still in place, we're gonna to continue to see massive illegal immigration. Rodney, can you tell us what has historically been done here in terms of court dates and what you're mentioning here, this notice to appear? Sure, so this has always been a challenge uh, throughout my entire career over, over 29 years um, because the court system is so backed up. We've tried different things, but here's the catch. Over my 30 year career, every single day, I really believe the border was getting more and more secure. And what that really means, bottom line, is we had a better idea of who was crossing our border and we could respond more effectively. Uh, under the last administration, uh, we tried a few things and we kind of, we flipped the, the dynamic, if you will, and made a significant impact on border security. We did that through the Remain in Mexico program. People still got a court date. They still got set up for, if they wanted to claim asylum, still got set up to see a judge. But we simply made them wait outside the U.S. We didn't give them the prize until after the court date. And then we shifted judges down to the border to expedite the new cases. Even though the old cases languished, they were already in the United States. Those combined efforts actually dramatically reduced cross-border illegal activity. And the, uh, the court uh, backlog, if you will, was actually dropping for the first time in years. This administration has completely wiped out all those wins and added millions uh, to that court docket. And Rodney, I want to go over to New York. New York City is struggling with an influx of illegal immigrants, and that's, that comes as New York Governor Kathy Hochul says officials are trying to set up these welcoming sites to relieve New York City. And Hochul is calling on congressional Republicans to give $1 billion to New York to help them. Is this the best use of taxpayer money? This is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, it, it's, I, I can't even find a good analogy to make up for this. Border security is a good use of taxpayers' money. Uh, the United States Border Patrol, their mission is to actually secure the border and prevent people from illegally entering the United States. This administration wiped out the effective programs they ha had. They redirected actual funding for enforcement programs and for technology uh, to what they call soft-sided processing facilities. Um, and that just expedited the massive increase in illegal immigration. New York City is now repeating that same step. They're basically welcoming, they're, they're creating all these incentives for people to come to New York, and that is just gonna create more of a draw. Well, okay, Rodney, so what do you think, briefly, is the best policy to protect the health and welfare of these people seeking entry into the United States as well as the American public? So to some people, this seems counterintuitive, but good border security is what keeps these people safe. The, the chaos on the border today, just like if there was chaos in any city, actually kills people. When you see this mass illegal migration, you know, some people want to basically go like, I don't know, the, their compassion comes out. And that's right. 
we're, we're a compassionate country. However, you need to think about the fact you're encouraging two or three more to come for every person that's allowed to exploit these loopholes and come in illegally. We can't do anything to protect these people on their route up here. And that's where they're actually getting sick. That's where they're getting raped. That's where they're getting robbed. Uh, even if they're, they're not in the hands of the cartel yet, the conditions that they're in uh, are, are not sanitary in most cases. That's where people get sick. So when you, the United States Border Patrol encounters them, they get medical treatment. Uh, they get to see doctors, nurses. They get a quick evaluation. But, but sometimes, like in recent cases, it's too late. And even uh, the U.S. medical system can't save these people. The best thing we can do is actually have good border security, make sure people come through our, into our country through the front door, and don't encourage illegal activity and don't create circumstances that put these people in the cartel's hands, which is unfortunately what this administration has done. Really great to have your insight. Rodney Scott, retired chief of U.S. Border Patrol, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. Appreciate it. Deutsche Bank has agreed to pay $75 million to settle a lawsuit. It was filed by women who say they were abused by late financier Jeffrey Epstein. They also accused the German bank of facilitating his sex trafficking. The agreement resolves claims in a proposed class action suit in Manhattan federal court. Epstein was a Deutsche Bank client from 2013 to 2018. He died in August 2019 in jail while awaiting trial for sex trafficking. The bank reportedly did not admit wrongdoing. A Deutsche Bank spokesperson declined to discuss the agreement. He instead referred to a 2020 statement in which the bank acknowledged error in making Epstein a client. He also said Deutsche Bank has invested more than 4 billion euros to bolster its controls, processes and training and hired more people to fight financial crime. Walgreens' parent company has reached a multi-million dollar settlement over its role in San Francisco's opioid epidemic. On Wednesday, officials announced Walgreens Boots Alliance Incorporated has agreed to pay $230 million to settle a civil lawsuit that alleged the drugstore chain was liable in the crisis. The U.S. District Judge in San Francisco accused the company of a 15-year failure to properly scrutinize opioid prescriptions and flag possible misuse of highly addictive drugs. A judge ruled last August pharmacies in the city received more than 1.2 million opioid prescriptions with red flags over a decade, yet performed due diligence on less than 5% of them before dispensing them. Walgreens disputed liability and did not admit fault in a statement. The settlement has averted a trial to determine damages. U.S. households' debt reaching record highs. An increasing number of Americans are not paying back their credit card debt. And this is worrying. Here's more. American household debt surpassed $17 trillion for the first time in the first quarter this year, according to recent Federal Reserve data. About $986 billion of that are credit card balances. The number is largely unchanged compared to the previous quarter. The number of people holding on to their debt is rising, according to Bankrate.com analyst Ted Rossman. Our research shows that 60% of people with credit card debt have had it for at least a year, and that's up from 50% last year. Credit card debt is persistent. People typically pay off their debts from the holiday season in the first quarter of the year, but it seems like this year people didn't do that. It marks the first time in 20 years that people didn't pay off their debt, and this is worrying. 
Credit card debt can really hold you back financially. So I think especially when you owe more than $5,000, that's when I think it really becomes dangerous that you could be holding this debt for decades. This could set you back in other areas of your life. We hear about people delaying milestones like marriage and having kids because of financial factors. Credit card debt jumped 17% compared to a year ago. What's causing this to happen? Here's economist Peter Earle from the American Institute of Economic Research. The combination of higher prices due to inflation, stagnating wages, and a slowing economy has made it tougher for consumers to keep up with their typical cost of living. I think it's really the, that combination, the fact that everything costs more and the fact that rates are higher. People are having trouble paying down these balances. Rossman says that people have to make paying off credit card debt a priority among everything else because credit card rates are much higher than other forms of debt. To relieve some pressure, he suggests taking out a personal loan as a form of debt consolidation or seek nonprofit credit counseling. You could also take on a side hustle or simply cut expenses. More Oregon counties throw their support behind breaking off and joining Idaho. The Greater Idaho Movement now has 12 Oregon counties working to merge into the state. Last night, Wallowa County voted to join the Greater Idaho Movement. A spokesperson said the result shows eastern Oregonians are ready for a long-term solution that actually resolves the urban-rural divide in Oregon. Portland Democrats promoted an ad campaign before the vote, calling it an extreme right-wing effort. Greater Idaho filed a complaint over the ads with the state. According to the movement, merging the conservative East Oregon counties with Idaho would benefit Oregon's state budget and end political gridlock. If both states and the U.S. Congress eventually approve the merger, Oregon will lose about 400,000 residents, about 9% of its population. Idaho would gain around $170 million annually in new tax revenue. Caught on camera, an Iowa police officer took a ride on the hood of a speeding car while attempting to stop a fleeing suspect. This is newly released body camera video of a traffic stop in March 2021. Authorities say police officer Patrick McCarty was speaking about a warrant to a passenger in the vehicle when the passenger pushed the driver out of the car and took control. The video shows Officer McCarty step in front of the vehicle with his gun drawn before ending up on the hood. According to investigators, the car reached speeds of more than 50 miles per hour before McCarty was flung from the hood. McCarty suffered back injuries but has since recovered. In March, the driver entered a guilty plea to serious injury by vehicle as part of a plea bargain. Last week, he was sentenced to up to five years in prison in order to pay restitution to Officer McCarty. The Department of Agriculture is moving toward vaccinating California condors against bird flu. Emergency approval for the vaccine comes after more than a dozen condors have been killed by the virus. There are just over 500 of them left in the world, so the deaths are said to have set conservation efforts back by a decade or more. The USDA granted emergency approval because of how critically endangered the birds are and how easy the small population is to monitor. Since the vaccine has never been used, it will first be tested on North American vultures. The latest outbreak of bird flu has led to the deaths of millions of birds in the U.S. Part of that is because farmers generally have to kill their entire flocks when the virus is detected. That method is used to control the outbreak over vaccines because it's difficult to mass vaccinate birds. And many countries don't accept exports from countries that vaccinate. 
Oscar Mayer's beloved Wiener Mobile is getting a new name. It goes along with a product the company is focusing on, 100% Beef Franks. The vehicle now goes by the name of the Frank Mobile. Across the lower part of the vehicle is written the All Beef Beef Frank Frank Mobile. The vehicle also reminds viewers with lettering that says, please do not lick. The name of the vehicle's drivers have also changed. Instead of being called Hot Doggers, they're now called Frankfurters. The company has a section on its website where fans can track the travels of the Frankmobile. The original Wienermobile debuted in 1936. The company has six vehicles in its fleet of hot dog-shaped vehicles. And coming up, the UK and Japan agree to deepen defense cooperation amid growing concerns about the threat from China in the Indo-Pacific region. How to counter the Chinese Communist Party's economic aggression? Lawmakers are setting out to level the playing field. Find out more when we return. Welcome back. The UK and Japan have agreed to a landmark cooperation accord ahead of the G7 summit. The accord will further the two countries' defense security and cyber ties amid growing concerns over the threat from China. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on Thursday agreed the Hiroshima Accord, stepping up defense cooperation. The two countries have forged closer relations over the past six months. We would like to demonstrate our broad cooperation by signing the Hiroshima Accord between Japan and UK. The Hiroshima Accord includes new agreements on defence, trade and investment and science and technology. The values that our two countries share are the same and I look forward to building on not just our friendship but also the partnership between Japan and the United Kingdom. The UK and Japan want to foster closer defence, security and cyber ties amid growing concerns about China. Sunak said closer cooperation will strengthen the two countries' security at home ahead of the meeting with his Japanese counterpart. We share with Japan a belief in a free and open Indo-Pacific region. That's very important. And we're increasing our engagement in the region to work with allies like Australia, like Japan, to ensure that the Pacific region does remain free and open. Hiroshima is Kishida's hometown. Sunak attended a bilateral dinner wearing the Red Sox of baseball team Hiroshima Toyo Corp. Kishida is a fan of the team. How can the U.S. defend itself and counter economic aggression from the Chinese Communist Party? That's what lawmakers in Washington aimed to find out yesterday in a hearing called Leveling the Playing Field. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the hearing and testimony from witnesses. The Select Committee will come to order. Uh, welcome, everyone. The bipartisan group of lawmakers of the Committee on the CCP agree the economic threat from the Chinese Communist Party is one that cannot be ignored. Republican Chairman Mike Gallagher says it's time to stop admiring the problem and actually get down to solutions. We need to stop fueling our own destruction. This means we shouldn't fund PLA modernization, we should protect our sensitive research and critical technologies, and not sacrifice national security for short-term profits. Gallagher says it's time to take off the golden blindfolds and open our eyes to the risks in China. American businesses shouldn't be complicit in the CCP's ongoing genocide, and American capital should not fuel human rights abuses. The chairman declared it's time to reinforce economic sovereignty and reshore critical supply chains. 
Democratic ranking member Raja Krishnamurthy says the U.S. needs to protect itself from unfair and competitive trade practices by the CCP. He suggested what he calls the three P's to put America back on track to win the strategic competition. People, production, and partnership. Three witnesses testified. They gave a long list of examples of how the CCP has been waging economic warfare on the U.S. for decades. Ambassador Robert Lighthizer. They reduced their cost of manufacturing by taking advantage of very low environmental standards. They target U.S. businesses and are trying to monopolize the supply of critical minerals in the world. In short, if this is not economic war, what is? Roger Robinson, former Reagan national security official, took aim at Wall Street and U.S. regulators, describing what he called arguably the largest strategic financial scandal in modern history. He says roughly 5,000 publicly traded CCP-controlled companies, many involved in egregious human rights and national security abuses, have been allowed to enter retirement and investment fund portfolios with little to no screening for decades. There are well over 100 million Americans holding the stocks and bonds of U.S. sanctioned and other Chinese corporate bad actors. Do we really believe that the American people would have wanted to be holding unwittingly the stocks and bonds of Soviet companies or those supporting Nazi Germany? Robinson says CCP enterprises should be delisted and deregistered from U.S. exchanges and Congress must take action to make it happen. Committee members are traveling to the UK Thursday to coordinate with British officials to more effectively counter China's communist regime. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. China refuses to be called a developed nation. This as Washington looks to strip China of its developing country status. Experts break down the tangible benefits Beijing reaps from that tag. A Chinese foreign spokesperson rejected the title of developed country last week, saying the label the U.S. wants to put on China won't stick. He added, China's per capita GDP last year came in at less than $13,000, only one-sixth of the U.S. level. Yet, such statements seem to defy Beijing's propaganda at home. The regime has been trumpeting its rise from poverty to so-called modest prosperity. In this context, it's contradictory to still call itself a developing country. Another commentator says the communist regime is cashing in on the duality of its identity. They want the world to believe that under Xi Jinping, China has become the most powerful country on earth and will soon overtake the U.S. as the world's largest economy. On the other hand, with the title of developing country, it seeks to reap economic benefits from the international community. What privileges are granted to a developing China? The United Nations offers various discounts to the country in its regular budget contribution. According to a Heritage Foundation report, these discounts cut China's dues by nearly $50 million in 2023. And through its WTO membership, China maintains its most favored nation status with countries like the U.S. That means access to larger markets, higher subsidies, and lower tariff rates. The World Bank designates China as a middle-income country. Until 2025, Beijing can still receive its low-interest loans. The amount? Up to $1.5 billion per year. Besides that, China also refused to pay into the UN's Climate Loss and Damage Fund for developing countries. Instead, Beijing argued that it should become a recipient of the payments. China is now the largest greenhouse gas emitter, generating nearly one-third of the world's carbon dioxide each year. That figure is more than all other developing countries combined. Meanwhile, Beijing is leveraging money to grow its political influence.
Over the decade its Belt and Road Initiative has been operating, the Chinese regime has funneled some $1 trillion to nearly 150 countries, making itself the world's largest official creditor. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Ukraine's foreign minister tells a top Chinese envoy that Ukraine won't cede any territory to Russia, even if it would end the war. He also said Ukraine won't accept any proposals that involve freezing the conflict. The Chinese regime's representative for Eurasian affairs visited Kyiv and spoke with the Ukrainian foreign minister. This is the first visit by a senior envoy from China since Moscow's invasion in 2022. The former ambassador to Russia is also expected to go to Russia, Poland, France, and Germany. The Chinese regime has refrained from condemning Moscow or referring to its actions as an invasion, leading to criticism from European countries and the United States. They have questioned China's credibility as a potential broker in the conflict. The British Prime Minister has backtracked on his pledge to shut down Chinese state-sponsored Confucius Institutes in the UK. The institutes have been banned in several countries across the world and are seen as a Chinese soft power threat in the West. And today's London correspondent Malcolm Hudson has more. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has abandoned his promise to shut down the 30 Chinese state-sponsored Confucius Institutes here in the UK. His office said the government is taking action to remove government funding from the institutes, but decided it would be disproportionate to ban them. This comes shortly after former Prime Minister Liz Truss called on Sunak to fulfil his promise. On the surface, Confucius Institutes run Mandarin courses in universities and facilitate cultural events. But they have also been accused of censoring speech, discriminating against Chinese ethnic minorities, propagating communist ideology and exerting undue influence on their host institutions. During his leadership campaign, Sunak pledged to kick the CCP out of our universities and declared China the biggest long-term threat to Britain. But on becoming prime minister, he adopted softer language, choosing instead to describe China as an epoch-defining challenge rather than a threat. A Downing Street spokesperson said the government recognizes concerns about Chinese interference in universities. They said, we are taking action to remove any government funding from Confucius Institutes in the UK, but currently judged that it would be disproportionate to ban them. Speaking to Talk TV, former Conservative Party leader Sir Ian Duncan Smith said he's disappointed with Sunak's U-turn. He said, Confucius Institutes are well known to have nothing to do with language. The truth is they are there to spy on particularly Chinese students and particularly Hong Kong students that are here. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Nine people died and thousands were evacuated from their homes due to floods in northern Italy. Exceptional rains caused rivers to bust their banks, triggering floods and landslides. Sunday's Formula One Grand Prix race in the previously drought-stricken region has been called off. Italian authorities race against time to evacuate stranded residents. Nine people have died in torrential rain in the country's northern region, triggering floods and landslides. Thousands of people were left homeless on Thursday. Some stranded residents were winched from the rooftops by rescue helicopters. Others were carried from their homes to amphibious vehicles. 
Officials said some areas received half their average annual rainfall in just 36 hours. Rivers burst their banks, sending water cascading through towns and submerging thousands of acres of farmland. Residents of a flood-stricken town save what they can of their belongings. I was expecting the river to rise after the red alert warning came through, but instead of breaking through in two or three places, it burst its banks and the water came with no warning. A healthcare shop owner said many of his goods were ruined. First impression, it was just terrible, as though it had just thrown around all this dirt, all this mud. It was just terrible to see. Authorities said flooding had hit 37 towns and communities and around 120 landslides had been registered. At least one bridge collapsed and rail services were suspended. Formula One's Grand Prix set for Sunday in nearby Imola was called off over safety concerns. Drone footage from the Imola race circuit showed part of the area underwater. Heavy storms also battered the Turkish capital Ankara, and yesterday a piece of furniture was spotted flying from a high-rise building. The footage captured by a local shows a sofa flying from the balcony of a 35-story apartment building. Onur Kalmaz said he was holding his phone and trying to check his car when he saw the couch coming toward him. He said it fell into the garden after crashing into nearby buildings. The Ankara mayor issued a warning from his social media page on Wednesday, urging residents to be careful about strong winds and flash floods. And just ahead, a surprising musical match. We take a look at the homes of two unlikely neighbors, rock star Jimi Hendrix and German composer Handel. A British adventurer sets a Guinness World Record by visiting the seven wonders of the world in record time. He uses his adventures to raise money for charity. Get the story right after the break. Good to have you back with us. A space dedicated to an unusual musical match reopens in London today. The 18th century composer George Frideric Handel rehearsed and wrote his greatest works there, including his masterpiece Messiah. Guitarist Jimi Hendrix then moved in next door more than 200 years later. Entity's Jane Whirl was at the Handel Hendrix house and sent us this report. It was here where the composer George Frederick Handel wrote his greatest works. Handel composed all his music from 1723 onwards in this house, and that includes some of his most enduring and famous works. So, um, for example, the Coronation Anthems, one of which Zadok the Priest we heard uh, a week or so ago at the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. Um, he wrote most of his 42 operas here, and perhaps most famously, he wrote Messiah. He wasn't the only musician to feel at home here. More than 200 years later, Jimi Hendrix moved into an adjoining apartment. His room, recreated from photographs, documentary evidence, as well as memories from his girlfriend. It's a special place to come and experience, and it's a special place for Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he said that, it, that this place was the first place in which he ever felt truly at home. His time here was short between 1968 and 69. Among his belongings is a vinyl copy of Handel's Messiah. Kathy 
his girlfriend says that his favourite music was the blues. We know he did enjoy listening to Handel, to Bach and to, to, to classical music actually is for sort of quiet reflection and, and thought really. Both musicians came to London to advance their musical careers. It's said that Hendrix once encountered Handel in the bathroom. Apparently, Jimi Hendrix thought that well, he went upstairs to his bathroom and thought that he saw the ghost of Handel. Whether or not he did, we will never know. But perhaps the fun thing is that he thought he did. The museum staff hope visitors will feel like guests in the homes of Handel and Hendrix, and that it continues to be a place where music is composed and performed. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. In Britain, during the king's coronation, bells across the country rang out. Ringing church bells for important occasions is a beloved tradition in the UK, but there's a problem. With an estimated 30,000 bell ringers and 38,000 chain ringing bells, there needs to be more hands to haul the ropes. In a church in Birmingham, a group called Bromdingers is practicing a centuries-old tradition, bell ringing. Some of the ringers joined recently in a recruitment drive for the coronation. We've probably had a couple of decades of not really realising that the ringing population is getting older and there's been a, 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 general, a general loss of, of, of ringers. So, so we've, we're running a campaign now to just raise the awareness of ringing and encourage more people to take it up. Bell ringing takes time and requires concentration, good timing and teamwork to get the peals ringing melodically. It doesn't require much strength and makes a lot of noise, so it's an ideal activity for children to learn at a young age. But how to make it appealing for children? Well, I used to get annoyed when, when the kids were looking at their phones rather than, than doing what I used to do when I learned to ring, which was sort of learn a ringing book. But I realised actually to keep the kids engaged, that phones are part of their lives, so, so they now have ringing apps and they keep in touch with their friends and that's fine. One of the ways to make sessions fun while you're learning to ring is to introduce games. The Brumdingers are split into two teams and compete for points in a series of games. Here, they are balancing chocolate bars on their heads as they ring, points lost for dropped bars. The youngest members of the group are nine-year-old twin brothers. They've developed a very strong enthusiasm for ringing. It's like it's a challenge every day because you, it's not like you know everything and you're always learning something new. Well, I got introduced to it and I thought it was fun. But there's not a, a specific reason why I think it's fun, I just think it's fun for some reason. I don't know why. This member is only 10 but has been ringing for six years already. You would definitely go for it, but you can't just wake up and do it. It's something that will have to learn over time, but once you've learned how to do it, um, you'll really enjoy yourself. The oldest Hebrew Bible in the world sold at auction for a record-breaking $38.1 million. It's called the Codex Sassoon, and it dates back to the late 9th or early 10th century. It's believed to be the first book form of the Hebrew Bible. In earlier centuries, portions of the text were written in scroll form, which came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Codex Sassoon includes 792 parchment pages. It's made from animal skins and weighs more than 26 pounds. The head of books and manuscripts at Sotheby's called it one of the most important texts in human history. The Hebrew Bible is the foundation of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. A 13-year-old Michigan boy who saved his sister from a suspected kidnapper last week says he knew he had to act. 
Owen Burns says the eight-year-old was in the family's backyard when a teenager came out of the woods and grabbed her. Burns says he saw the struggle, attacked the suspect with his slingshot, and hit him twice. It just felt like I was scared and I had like something to do because if I didn't grab it, she would have been taken away or more, more worse. So I grabbed it, grabbed anything I could get. I grabbed like I had a gravel rock in there and a marble right next to it. So I grabbed it, I put it in here, and I just shoot it. Police say Burns' heroic action saved the girl by allowing her to escape the 17-year-old's grasp. The suspect is charged with attempted kidnapping and child enticement, as well as assault and battery. Police say they expect he will be tried as an adult in court. Freshmen at the U.S. Naval Academy have successfully completed a grueling and amusing annual school ritual. They worked for two and a half hours to get to the top of a greased monument. At the top of the 21-foot-tall Herndon Monument, they had to replace a freshman hat with an upperclassman one. It marks their official passage to fourth-class midshipmen. The climb dates back to the 1950s. The monument is greased with a heavy coat of vegetable shortening, and freshmen must exercise perseverance, teamwork, and ingenuity to replace the hat. As they struggle under the weight, a steady stream of water is sprayed over them to keep them cool. Chris Paris from Louisville, Kentucky, got to the top and capped the monument. Since record-keeping began in 1962, the longest time to cap the monument was four hours and five minutes by the class of 1998. The shortest time was one minute and 30 seconds by the class of 1972, but the monument wasn't Greece that year. A British adventurer has set a Guinness World Record by visiting the seven wonders of the world in less than seven days. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on his odyssey. We've done it. In just six days, 16 hours, and 14 minutes, Jamie McDonald traveled more than 22,000 miles to see the new seven wonders of the world. Did I enjoy every wonder? Absolutely. You know, for me, I understand it's all about the journey and the destination is always a bit of a letdown when you're adventuring. But in this instance, it wasn't like every single time we got to a wonder, it was just magical. The list includes the Great Wall of China, Petra in Jordan, India's Taj Mahal, the Colosseum of Rome, Machu Picchu in Peru, the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, and the ancient Mayan site of Chichen Itza in Mexico. But his travels didn't always go smoothly. I ended up missing a flight. I went to the wrong terminal, uh, but luckily they kind of swooped in and managed to get me on the next flight. And then, of course, then make the next piece of transport after that. Otherwise, the whole thing could have went under. At the Taj Mahal in India, McDonald only had a few moments to look at the landmark and track down an official witness. I think I slept 12 hours in the space of seven days. So from that front, it was really challenging. And it was go, 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 nonstop. I think when we saw the Taj Mahal, the taxi driver pulled up, we ran, right? Or I ran. But his odyssey had some moments of calm. Machu Picchu was one of my favorites over 8,000 meters of altitude, so up in the clouds in the mountains. It felt spiritual. A crippling medical condition McDonald suffered as a child was his main motivation. The condition I had as a kid is called shrinkomyelia. And so I had weird symptoms uh, like an immune deficiency, epilepsy, so I spent most of my time in and out of hospital. McDonald uses his adventures to raise money for charities. He says he's raised $1.25 million over the years. Hello! So what's next? 
the father of three says the next challenge will likely be closer to home, and that parenting is an adventure in itself. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A brand new trailer is providing a preview of some of the amazing stunts you'll see in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Our lives are the sum of our choices. And we cannot escape the past. Ethan, this mission of yours is gonna cost you. The upcoming action spy film is written and directed by Christopher McQuarrie. The movie finds Ethan Hunt and his team on a mission to prevent a deadly new weapon from falling into the wrong hands. The seventh installment in the billion-dollar action franchise hits theaters July 12th. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.